it's like they're coming out there and i'm gonna be me and it's gonna be super fun and hopefully i convert them and the conversion number is good i'm sure every once in a while people are like this person's insane i don't ever take me to see him again and i'm fine with that i'd rather have that any day than somebody say Howdy, and welcome to this episode of Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like podcast. This is a series of conversations with artists, singer-songwriters about their current projects and the industry people about some of the current trends. The program is hosted and produced by myself, Bruce Swan, and the podcast will endeavor to be a bridge from the weekly live concert series to the weekly radio programs. While they are unaffiliated, they are connected with the sharing of the same name, music my mother would not like. You can get more information about the weekly series and the radio broadcast programs at the website musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. The radio show can be heard live on WSFM LP 103.3 FM Asheville, North Carolina. It can be heard live on AshevilleFM.org and programs are archived on the website too for two weeks. The program airs on Mondays from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. The weekly music series with the same name can be heard and seen on Zoom and Facebook, and you can get more information on the website and on my Facebook page with the same name. Registration for the series is always free. It is a donation-based event, and that's how the artists are paid. These podcasts will vary in length, and many of the episodes will come from interviews conducted live in the radio station via telephone and now via Zoom. Nothing was ever taken out of context and may be updated if it's possible and appropriate. The opinions expressed will be those of the speakers and not necessarily of any of the radio stations that I've been lucky enough to be affiliated with over the years, its owners, staff, or boards of directors. You can support this project directly through the website's PayPal account. In time, there will be a Patreon account that will have heads up on articles, interviews, etc. And if you're digging what you're listening to, please tell a friend. And if you'd like to support the show, we'll give you a shout out of thanks. Just let me know in the comments section of PayPal. And please remember to indicate that you are sending a donation as a gift to a friend. And any little bit helps. If I've learned anything from my years in community radio, it's that lots of big things will get done when the hands of many chip in a little bit. Just think about the cost of a cup of coffee at your local spot. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're listening while you're sipping, and I'm glad to be keeping company with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. My big thanks to the sponsors of the programming at Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. We currently enjoy the benefits of being connected with and sponsored by HearItThere.com and UndiscoveredMusic.net.
Over the years, I've had the opportunity to get to know many musicians and, and industry people. The musicians are often the band's principal singer, or in the case of a singer-songwriter, the only person the conversation is, is with and about. I've also been privileged to get to know some of other radio personalities, directors of festivals, owners of venues, record promoters, and producers. And many of the conversations were to promote a single event, like a local concert, or a discussion about a new al- album with a deep dive into that project. I find that sometimes as a listener, knowing a little bit more about the artist as a person makes going to the concert just that much more interesting. It it certainly does for me. And that takes a little bit of probing. Conversations are just as much about listening as it is about asking and talking. Would your business, your firm, your company, project like to meet other cool people like yourself? Well, maybe you'd like to become a sponsor of the program. I find that working with people that think alike and share common interests is the key to getting things done. You can write to me directly at the website, musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. This episode of Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like is with an artist that can only be described as a force of nature. There is no confining his absolute pure enthusiasm for his music. The interview with Steve Pulse was done in support of a show that I did get to see at the Great E. Carolina in Asheville. It was a nonstop explosion of entertainment. He is a prolific writer, a marvelously genuine human being. It seems perfectly natural that this episode is economically entitled Episode Number 007, Steve Pulse. You know, quote, I was reading from your website, some people start life with a plan, not Steve. He opens himself up to the universe in a way that most of us will never be loose enough to achieve. And the universe responds with a wink, a seemingly bottomless well of inspiration and the talent to truly connect with an audience. While 2021 could have found him adrift, faced with a tour moratorium, the likes of which he hadn't experienced in decades. It opened a door literally to his friend Oliver Wood of the Wood Brothers to creating an exuberant, thoughtful batch of songs that celebrate life in all of its stages. No depression crowned him a sardonic provocateur with a lighthearted acoustic driven wit suggesting at times a sunnier, less psychedelic Todd Snyder or maybe less wan washed Jackson Brown. While the Associated Press dubbed him part busker, part Iggy Pop, and part Robin Williams, a free-willing folky with a quick wit and big heart. You could probably say that's all true. We can stop the interview and that will be the end of it. But I don't think that that's quite the case. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but I've been told that there's no such thing as a typical Steve Poltz show, although they are typically unscheduled, um, just a rash or or just an absolute nonstop stream of consciousness. The only time I've seen you play was at a folk conference in New Orleans, and the room was packed. I mean, figure like a King King Oscar can of sardines. It was packed. And I got the last seat. And I only knew it was the last seat because the place was packed. There was no room. I could barely get through the door. I knew that my girlfriend had saved me a seat. So I was grateful for that. But I had a, a hell of a time trying to get in. And from what I saw, it was lights came down. You came on the stage. And then I don't know what happened after that. It was like a, like a, like a cyclone had hit <laughs> Ed Sullivan Theater or something. It was a, a world of, of consciousness and just, just craziness. And I absolutely dug it. And I got to believe that that's what most of the shows are from based on what I've read. And is there a lick of truth in any of that? No, that's true. I, I really love what I do for a living. And so it's magic. 
So I just try not to overthink it, but it's, it's totally magic. It's a magic trick. You go up there and you just um, allow things to happen. I don't really like to use a set list or anything. So every show kind of has its own vibe and it's a little journey. <laughs> How do you know when you're done? Well, I used to never know when I was done. Like one time I played a show and I told the audience I wasn't going to quit till everybody was either gone or asleep. It was at this place called Java Joe's. Yeah. And I think I played for eight and a half hours till no finally way. there were three people left. And then two of them were asleep. One guy was still awake. And Java Joe was awake too, the owner of the club, but he didn't count because he was the owner. And then finally, when the third guy fell asleep, I ran around the room singing, We Are the Champions. <laughs> and <laughs> it was just for my own benefit. So, I'll, and I remember how this manager would get so mad at me and go, A show has a beginning a middle and an end you need to find the end it's taken me a long time and i think i now know when to end a show i'm still you know sometimes i mess up but i feel like i'm getting a little bit better at it maybe when i'm 80 i'll have it down i think that's cool though that, that you leave that nothing's left like when when you're done that's it you're finished it's over but you you've you've given people an, an unbelievable experience and, and maybe that's the real the real joy of seeing live performance that for two hours for 90 minutes for whatever the time period is you can set aside all the problems outside like everything can just, can just stay out there for a little bit of time and you can you can go someplace else you can be entertained you can be with like-minded people for 90 minutes or two hours and i think that that's really the magic of a ticket to a show. Sure, we can watch things on live. We can watch them recorded. We can listen to live records. And there's a magic about that. But for me, you know, I get, I've been going to shows for 45 years. And when the lights come down, the house lights start to come, I get like the stupid grin on my face. And I'm wondering, okay, what, what is he going to play? Is he going to play this song, that song? And what's the show going to be like? And, you know, all these questions buzzing through your head until the former comes out, the house lights come back up, and the show begins. And, it never goes away. That 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 absolute magic of watching live performance. I agree it's, it's with infectious. you. Infectious. Yeah, I just was on this cruise ship called Kayamo. I don't mm -hmm. know if you've ever heard of yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So I was on this cruise ship. It's put on by this company called Sixth Man, and so I'll do like five, four or five different, four or five shows on the boat. And you know, Emmy Lou Harris does it. Did, did it this year? The Punch Brothers, Dawes. Sierra Hall, Ifo Donovan. I mean, it's like nonstop, just wonderful artists. And so a month before I left, my buddy Jim Lauderdale called me up here in Nashville where I live. And he said, hey, you're going to be on Kayamo and I'm going to be on Kayamo. And we're both stowaways, meaning we weren't announced. Okay. They always do a secret stowaways. And then they surprise the people there with whoever the stowaway is. And so Jim says, why don't we do a show together a stowaway show. And I said, okay, cool. And I didn't know what we we're going to do. I'd have to learn some of his songs. He goes, no, let's write all new songs for the show with only a month to go. And so I just said, and he knew I was the kind of guy who would be up for the challenge because I'm always making up new songs. And so he came over every day for like seven days in a row. I think we wrote 15 songs of which we did 12 for our show. And it was <laughs> so fun. And now we're going to make a duo record. Um, we got that on, you know, we're going to have a label put that out because 
we didn't realize it was going to be so fun to write together and to sing together. And so he'll be coming by again today to write more songs before, uh, or not today, but he will be coming when I'm back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> I hear you. I'm time traveling right now. <laughs> That's cool. Turn this tour's over. <laughs> Satellites and stardust, man. Nobody travels like you. Well, yeah. I was going to ask you about that, about the Kayamo cruise. Um, so you're on the on this ship, on this vessel for a number of days. Is there interaction, a lot of interaction between you and other performers? Are you sort of keeping to yourself? Do people kind of hunker down in their cabins? Or uh, is it sort of festival, like, you know, behind the scenes? There is so much collaboration going on. It's amazing that um no when you're on that boat you're just like rubbing shoulders with everybody and so like you get on the boat you think you only have three shows mm -hmm. maybe pay as you schedule for three shows and the next thing i know my friend john craigie goes you know we you have a day at port and we're at port together and so we write a song together that we do that night for his show where I'm playing the guitar with my left hand and he's strumming it with his right hand. And we wrote this song called You Complete Me. And then that just killed. And then my friend Brady Blade, who is just an amazing drummer, he toured with Jewel, uh, with Steve Earle and the Dukes, with Emmy Lou Harris. And Brady Blade's just this wonderful drummer. And he said, why don't you be, do a song during Brady Blade's drum extravaganza at the pool deck show? So I did a John Hartford song with the Emmy Lou's band backing me up, the Red Dirt Boys. And it was great. We did uh, Way Up on the Hill where they do the boogie. And then the Mavericks asked me to do a song with them. So we did Streets of Bakersfield, um, which was really cool. The old Buck Owens song that also Dwight Yoakam uh, did on one of his records. And man, it was so fun playing with the Mavericks. And then the Shook Twins were there and they said, hey, let's do that song we wrote together because we have a song on my record, Folk Singer, called Wake You Up. So we did that. And then they asked me to sing a song with them, another Hartford song, uh, Just When You Think It Can't Get No Better Than It Does. We did that during their set. And this goes on and on and on. Um, my friend Kathleen Edwards then asked me mm -hmm. to play her show. And she interviewed me and I did like three songs during her set. And... So yes, getting back to your question, there is so much cross collaboration going on because there's an artist lounge that has guitars there, a piano, a bass guitar, and everybody's just hanging out. Uh, Jerron Paxton, you know, from, uh, he used to play with Rhiannon Giddens. He's playing his banjo back there. Um, Phil Madera from the Red Dirt Boys. It's so much fun. And if you're open to it and full of whimsy as I am, the the universe just offers up all these opportunities <laughs> well on that boat so it's got that festival feel only better because it's seven days and you're mm -hmm. all captive on this boat together yeah i was going to say that 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 there you are as opposed to a festival where you got tour buses coming and going and people are sort of passing in in, in behind stage areas or um you know a little bit of time but not an awful lot because they got to get on to the next gig you know a lot of the festivals um you know, artists at your level they're, they're there for for the gig and then they got to get on to the next one it's not it's not a vacation it's it's working are you oh yeah um, and i had written a song with sierra hole yeah and then she asked me to do the song we wrote so i had her set too which is crazy so yeah anyways
HereAtThere.com is an online arts publication that supports the arts and culture of the New York City tri-state area with concentrations in the Hudson Valley and Western Connecticut. Intelligent, well-written blog columns about music and the arts can also be found there. Check it out, HereAtThere.com, like it sounds, H-E-A-R-I-T-T-H-E-R-E.com. Check it out and consider marketing your upcoming events on HereAtThere.com. I do. Hey, this is fantastic. I'm really digging this time. You know, your your tour schedule is, is robust, and um, after after a pandemic, what would what you know, and whatever the word normal now means on a typical year, how many nights out were you on the road on on most years? Man, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I've been on the road since the '80s, mm-hmm. like since the eighties, when I quit my job after I graduated from college and I had a real job in sales and I quit the job and I never once worked again. I've never worked a day in my life since because (laughs) I love what I do. And that's why I don't want to die is because I want to see what happens next. I want to see what songs are written. That's because certain songs are like nuclear weapons or they're a new arrow in your quiver. And so I go, man, what song am I going to have that's just going to destroy next year that I don't even know about yet? And so I, I've always just kept touring. And here it is, 2022, and I still haven't stopped. Well, you said that the, the, the songs just sort of find you. The inspirations find you. You live in a world where it's, it's limitless um, inspirations. And I was going to ask, do you feel that you have a finite number of songs in you? And it sounds like you don't. And all you have to do is stay alive long enough to get them all out of you. Like that's, that's all yeah. you have to do. I have no finite number at all. They'll go on for as long as I live. And as long as I collaborate with people, which I always love doing because I know so many different songwriters all over the world. And a zillion of them are here in Nashville, Tennessee. And everybody wants to uh, write a song and hang out and, you know, Molly Tuttle. I got a song on Billy Strings' new record. It's called, the song is called Leaders. It's the last song on his new record. And uh, I have a song with Molly Tuttle and with Catch Secor. And it goes, it just, people are coming over here to write songs with me. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. I, I think it's because I had one hit with Jewel. They all go, he did it once. Maybe he can do it again. You know? <laughs> number two with Jewel. Maybe I can get like number three, number four. You know, that that'll be okay. Yeah. I'll settle for three or four. You know, it's not bad. Not bad at all. Yeah, it's super fun. Any worries now about touring? Are you concerned about the virus? Are you concerned? Do you feel that this may be behind us or that, that people are taking enough precautions that it's probably okay? And are you modifying how you're touring as opposed to how you may have done it in the past? No, I was a terrible pandemic guy. I just wasn't made for a pandemic. I'm like a golden retriever. I want to jump in people's laps. Like I was living next door to Chris Wood from the Wood Brothers and I'm from Modesky Martin and Wood. Mm-hmm. And me and Chris Wood would go on walks in the morning during the pandemic. And my wife was like, do you realize how scared Chris Wood is of you when you guys walk? Do you not see him backing up five feet? Because I would get closer and closer and be emphatic trying to make a point <laughs> during the pandemic. And I'd want to walk with my arm around him because I love Chris Wood. I love Oliver Wood. Like They're good friends of mine. And so, no, I have no worries about it because I'm a reckless human being. And I just am the kind of guy who always wants to keep touring. And so my wife, God bless her, is always like, 
you know, she was like really good about washing the fruit and washing the boxes right. that UPS delivered and making me wash my hands because I'm just, I just wasn't good. I wasn't made for a pandemic. And so I figured out a way to get out there working during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I kept working. Uh, I said, how many people can I legally play for? And they said 20 in Northern California. And I, my friend Casey Turner booked these shows where we would drive to people's houses and I would play to 20 people and I would do three shows a day. So I was doing like 16 shows in five days and cause I have boundless energy. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. And it was fun. Like, I just was like, you know, when you see a dog, I don't know. I lived in San Diego for years and I would go to Tijuana all the time. I mm -hmm. crossed the border to Tijuana cause I loved going down and gambling on sports. And so like, for a while, I couldn't watch a Padres baseball game unless I had action on it. So I'd go down <laughs> to eat lunch, place a bet on the Padres. They'd lose. I'd lose money. I don't gamble on sports anymore because <laughs> you, you just can't win. But I was constantly going down to Mexico to go surfing or whatever. And so I would always see these three-legged dogs. You see more three-legged dogs in Tijuana. And they were so cool because they hang with the other pack and they learn how to move. And so I was like a three-legged dog. I was just like, I'm going to figure out how to play shows. And what can I legally do? Just tell me what I need to do, and I'll adhere to those rules. Get vaxxed, fine. I'll get vaxxed. Get boosted, I'll get boosted. Wear a mask, I'll wear a mask. Just let me go out and keep playing shows. And so I don't see this pandemic really going away for years. I think we're going to always have, you know, Delta Omicrons and everything else but we're just going to find a way to keep going because I think everybody realized you can't just really shut down the whole world. No, you can't. I think things do have to move on. And, and um, I admire those that said, okay, if these are the rules, I will adhere to them. I'm not going to challenge them. I will honor them, but I'm, that was I'm, I'm going to use them. I'm, if, if it's only 20, that's all I need. I only, I only need 20. Don't bring 20. Yeah. And I did, I did shows on Facebook, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, I really loved those because I didn't see the people. I didn't like doing Zoom shows because I have a really vivid imagination. I, when I was doing my Facebook shows, I imagined thousands of people screaming at home going, yes, <laughs> and in my mind, because I am insane, okay? And I know it. I have, the reason I do what I do is because I am insane. And so when I saw what was actually happening on Zoom, it was such a letdown. I'd see people like half asleep. They wouldn't even be in front of their screens anymore. They'd gotten up to go somewhere <laughs> like a dog running across barking. <laughs> and I was like, this is not cool. I'm not going to do Zoom shows anymore. I'm just going to do streaming shows where I don't have to see the audience because it was ruining my high. Well, which is interesting because there's a real skill set to being able to play effectively to, to in essence, a white light. You play a show, yes. you know that there's human beings out there. You can see them house, you know, before the lights come down in your eyes, you can see how many seats there are in the room, how many people are there, you get a feel for it. And with Zoom, if it's on gallery, you can see all these people. And yes, you can see them sleeping, snoozing, standing up, walking, scratching their nose, whatever. Um, whereas on Facebook, you imagine that there are this, this many people and they're there, and you but you're still playing to just the white light. And I think that there that has um, 
its own real significant skill set that are required to make that interesting and make it alive. I know Todd Snyder did his Sunday church services um, at 11 o'clock, and those were those were pretty exciting. And um, once a week, he'd get up and, and do the show and playing to that to that white light as though the audience is there. I thought that was uh, was pretty fantastic. And you know, and bravo for all the artists that that tried to. Um, stay connected to their community at a time that was really kind of tough. I mean, most of us are not accustomed to being um, hermits and, and it wasn't self-imposed hermitage. It was, it was thrust upon us and it was very strange. And, and that these artists could come to, to your home, to your TV set, to your living room once a week, once a day, once a month, whatever it was, I thought, I think was very important. And um, the skill set was picked up pretty quickly, but it was, it was a special one, I think to play to, to a white light, when you're accustomed to playing to, you know, a couple hundred pairs of eyes on any given night. Oh, people were really taking it to a new level too. Like I'm, I'm really close with this uh, guy out of Boston named Bob Schneider. And so Bob Schneider, man, and, and also Todd Schneider, they both really, you know, did good production value. I just did it to my iPhone mm-hmm. and I get so into it. And I would make oatmeal in front of people <laughs> and just whatever. And what I realized was I loved doing streaming shows. I may do one again this week just because I really got so into it. And they would be like two hour long shows and I'd be sweating when it was done and saying the craziest stuff. Like I got really into it. <laughs> and so the pandemic, I was actually kind of fine with it all and that was due to the fact that i was lucky enough to stay home i wasn't working in a hospital i wasn't dealing with some of the horrors that these people had to go in every day and face and i was very fortunate to be in that situation where i was able and the pandemic was a blessing because i went out to california where my dad lived and i got to go have lunch with him every other day because i had no shows and so he didn't die of COVID. He died because his kidneys finally came out at the age of 90, but his mind was sharp till the day he died. So I got to have lunch with him and two other 90-year-old women from the place where he lived. We would take these different 90-year-old ladies out to lunch and go on these double dates with them. And it was so fun. And I would buy them lunch and sneak them out. And we avoided any of them getting COVID. And um, we would go to places where we would only be outside and wash our hands and wear masks. And it was a joy that I got to spend so much time with my dad because I would have been on the road just doing shows and calling him from the road because he always loved knowing, how'd the show go last night, Stevie Boy? Tell me about it. What did you play? And I would tell him about the show and he'd get so into it. And so the pandemic for me was a blessing, but I feel bad even saying that when I think of all the people who it wasn't you know that that had that were in dire straits because of it yeah but as you talk about the streaming shows you you provided a service all the artists did i think and and sort of connecting us to them in a time when we otherwise couldn't and when you get down to it many people have been able to see some of their favorite artists in a way that they never could before and never will again and um if you're living in in some rural areas and schedules don't don't line up properly, you will never see these artists. They will never come to a town within, you know, 15 minutes of where you live. It's just, it's just the nature of the touring business. So I think in that respect, there, there was a silver lining to, to the pandemic, you know, and I'm glad those that came out on the right side of the whole thing were able to, um, 
but I think being able to, you know, be observant of the rules, modify the rules, and uh, make the best of them, I think, is is uh, true stuff. UndiscoveredMusic.net has something for everybody involved in seeing, playing, and hosting live music. It is a very well-organized website designed to help you find musicians to play your venue, what venue the artists are playing at, and when. So if you're a music buyer, player, or watcher in person or in virtual, check out UndiscoveredMusic.net. You know, I love the current record, Stardust and, and Satellites, and it seems intensely personal. Everything from your love of baseball and a tattoo on your arm and let's stay together, sort of a, a snapshot um, of time in, in up with people. The record you said was, was a collaborative work with the uh, Wood Brothers in terms of the, the writing. And I know as we talked earlier that you enjoy the collaboration, but it did seem like an intensely personal record. Is, is that, was that the intention or was this just the songs that you had and said, oh, Hey, this is what we got. Let's go into the studio and knock it back and, and see where it takes us. Yeah, I had written a couple songs with my friend Anthony DaCosta. And so those bookend the record. Um, it starts with a song called Wrong Town that I wrote with Anthony DaCosta. And it ends on Stardust and Satellites, also a song I wrote with Anthony DaCosta. We were sitting in Nashville at our friend John Maylander, Mylander's house. who He's a fiddle player for Bruce Hornsby, a great fiddle player. And uh, me and Anthony wrote that uh, title track song there just sitting on this guy's porch the song just appeared and then um i wrote uh the song conveyor belt after my dad died mm -hmm. and i had this whole idea that we're just on this conveyor belt and then john o'ricks from wood brothers gave me a drum beat and i wrote can of pop to this drum beat i went home that night and wrote that and then i guess most of the other songs i just wrote myself oh no i wrote one with maya davitri from stray birds she used to be in stray birds now right. she's so she's great um and we wrote a song called Miles in My Heart. And then I wrote one with Lindsay Lou. She's a fantastic singer-songwriter from Michigan uh, out of the Billy Strings scene up in Michigan. She now lives in Nashville. And so there were like maybe five co-writes and then five that I just did myself. And then I had the Wood Brothers produce it because uh, we were in the pandemic and I went over to Oliver Wood's house, I think one night for dinner. And he said, why don't you come into the studio? We're all masked up. and." You know, just do the first song and see how you like it. And so I did the first song and I love the way it came out. I, I think it was a song called uh, We Did Frenemy and I was really into it. And then I had written this song called Up With People. And the only reason I wrote the song Up With People is because I'd learned how to play this song by Jerry Reed called Steeplechase Lane. And Steeplechase Lane was a mistake song because Chet Atkins had given Jerry Reed a tuning and said, go home tonight and write a song in this tuning. And Jerry Reed was drunk and wrote the tuning down wrong. And the tuning was <laughs> that he wrote down was D G D E B D. And it was this weird tuning. And the next day he comes back and he played the song for Chet Atkins. And Chet Atkins said, What tuning is that? And he goes, D G D E B D, just like you told me. He goes, I didn't say that tuning. That's so weird. And so then I was like, I'm going to learn to play Steeplechase Lane because it's a pandemic and I got nothing but time. And then after I wrote that, I thought, well, I don't want to change the guitar out of that tuning and not have another song to do. So I wrote up with people. And so this whole album just kind of fell into my lap. And I actually had way more songs, but I, I only, my goal was to only do 10 songs on the record and keep it under 32 minutes, 32 mm -hmm. minutes running time. 
just like the old days when I used to buy, I'd only have so much money and I'd go to the, ride my bike to the record store and go, okay, I can buy one record. And I'd, it was like the biggest decision of my life. Oh yeah. You know? What do I buy? The Beatles just came out with the white album. I have enough to get that. That's more expensive because it's a double record or should I buy two records? You know what I mean? And I'd go, I'm getting the Beatles. Like if I knew the Beatles were coming out with a record, I couldn't sleep the night before I'd be so excited because that's where my country <laughs> was going. You know, it'd be this buildup knowing that that record was coming out that day. You and I are, are just a couple of months apart in, in terms of age. And I know the feeling and, and the, the excitement um, of going to get that record, of being able to get yourself to the store yourself and buying the music and coming back and listening to it. And, and there's the magic of being open, opening up the vinyl record and the whole ceremony of opening the vinyl and opening up the <clears throat> the plastic wrapping and taking it out and cleaning it and, and putting it on the platter and t you know, dropping the tone arm or maybe the record changer did it for you. Um, but then being able to delve into the, the, the physical album cover, looking at the pictures and reading all the, the liner notes. And, and you could make, hell, you can make a whole afternoon out of that easily. No problem at all. And then skip homework and do it again tonight. Um, and you'd it, smell the record. Yeah. You'd smell it when you open it, the way it's the scent of the, the, the packaging, the cardboard. Like if it was a fold gate one, you open it up, I'd always smell it. And mm -hmm. then look at the vinyl and read every liner note. Like if it was a James Taylor record, for instance, maybe it was one man dog or something like Peter Asher, Leland Sklar, Russell Kunkel. Where was it recorded? And all you had were those pictures to look at. And then maybe Rolling Stone would come out or Acoustic Guitar Magazine or something. You'd get one article about the person. But you couldn't see pictures of them shopping at Whole Foods, getting in an argument with somebody or, you know, yeah, slapping, it's, it's... slapping a comedian in the face. <laughs> something like that, yeah. That'd be crazy if that ever happened on TV, no less, in front of millions. Um, it's, it's a whole nother, whole nother circus. Uh, I, I was reading, and I have not heard this record, but um, Answering Machine was a collection of 56 songs that are 45 seconds apart. I, I thought that that was kind of an interesting way of making a record. At what point did you say, I'm just going to leave some myself some messages and see what comes of it? Um, what was that? Well, that was all a mistake. Like, I would just, I had an answering machine at home and I was always on the road with my band, The Rugburns. Mm -hmm. And so when I would, we would always wake up in some hotel room and I would call my answering machine and change the message each day. And so, you know, you'd have to put in a series of a number to make it so it would record. It would be a micro cassette and it would be like, record new message at beat. And then you'd hold the phone between your legs. I would hold the phone between my legs and sing a song into it. And I'd have to make it exactly 45 seconds because that's all the tape would allow. So you'd have to do the whole thing, your thesis statement, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and tell them what you told them within 45 seconds and somehow have the song make a point. And so it really taught me about brevity and trying to get to the point. Yeah. And so you couldn't, don't bore us, get to the chorus. And so I was making these outgoing messages and then I would just erase it the next day and it'd be gone. But there was a friend of mine who put out records in San Diego and he had a little punk rock label called Scamorama Records. And this guy wrote for Flipside Magazine 
And he put out records by the Dragons and the Dragons were a San Diego band. Mario Escovedo, his brothers, Alejandro Escovedo, his mm -hmm. um, aunt is Sheila E. Um, and so he was taping my messages by holding a Radio Shack tape recorder up to his phone while listening to it. And then he turned it into a CD and came to me one day and said, hey, if you don't mind, I'm going to put out a CD of your messages. It's got 56 songs and seven bonus tracks. <laughs> and I said, how did you do this? And he goes, I've taped them every day. I just keep calling your house and taping them. So I said, cool, put it out. So he put it out and it became like this cult classic. Um, <laughs> I need to put it up on Spotify. I think I'm going to do that now that I'm thinking about it because it's got 56 songs and Neil Young came over to my friend, Henry Diltz house. And Henry Diltz is this great photographer who shot the doors Morrison hotel and he shot, you know, Jackson Brown saturate before using Joni Mitchell blue, James Taylor. Um, he shot sweet baby James Crosby stills and Nash, that famous one where they're on the couch. Yeah. He's just a great photographer. And he and Gary Burden did all the art, every album, cover for neil young and so neil young was getting married i mean gary burden was getting married not the gary burden the singer but gary burden who was an art director and neil young was the best man and i think like the night before the wedding neil came over to their house and they were smoking a joint and gary and henry Dultz loved answering machine and he said just listen to two songs this is our friend steve pultz we just did his album cover for when I was signed to this major label, Mercury Records, I put out a record called One Left Shoe. So Neil Young listened to the first two songs and they were gonna take it off and change the records. There's some music and Neil said, leave it on. And Neil listened to all 56 songs and the seven bonus tracks while they're getting stoned. And then when he left, he goes, this is now mine. And he took it out of their player and put it in his coat and left the house with it. So I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> Very Neil Young-esque to do. The, uh, it's, it's, I, it's fantastic. You're such a wealth of knowledge. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that, that it's just, it's, it's like your show. It's just a stream of consciousness that just pointing in the I right direction. Like set lists because a set list to me is like, it would be like saying, okay, I'm going to have a party at 10 PM. We're playing pin the tail on the donkey at this time. It's too control freakish. Yeah. I like to get up and have magic happen, but I realized that, not everybody is like that, but for me, it works. And so sometimes I'll just think, I want to talk about this, 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 and this. And I might write down an idea, but I never stick to it. <laughs> it just becomes this whole other journey because I'm riffing on what's going on with the audience. And in a way, it's like I'm Tom Brady or something. I'm stepping back and I'm reading the defense and, oh, there's a pass rush come in. That person in the audience is yawning. This other person's laughing. I think I'm bored him with this last song. I need to do this. I need a comic relief. Or I need to take them lower now. I need to have a sense of redemption now. Springsteen always has like a sense of redemption at the end of his shows. And so I've learned to craft a show, but I don't really know what's going to totally happen. But going back to that whole thing of having arrows in my quiver, right. I just know, oh, this is a good time to do this. So before I play a show, I like to sit alone for a good hour and just play guitar and pull out old songs I haven't done in years a lot of times because I need to keep it interesting for myself. 
And so I'll go like the other night I played in safety Harbor in, outside of Tampa. And I started the show with three very old Rugburn songs that I guarantee you nobody in the audience had ever heard before, but they were lyrically really interesting. And I forgot, um, I wrote them back in the eighties and, right. I, and as I was singing them, I was like, I can't believe I wrote this. I was actually saying that to the audience because <laughs> some of the stuff is not as PC or woke as words would be today. But I said, and I kept saying to the audience, it was the eighties. It was a different <laughs> time. <laughs> and that became my whole callback that night was it was the eighties. It was a different time and why these songs were written and the audience is laughing and we established a sense of community. And by the end, we've gone on this journey together. And hopefully by the end of the show, they're on their feet and they're, they're feeling very good and they've forgotten how horrible the world can be. Yeah. We talked about that earlier in the, in the interview and I, I agree with you hundred percent that it just sort of takes you someplace else for a little bit of time. But what is, I don't know how to craft the question, but, there are people I'm sure that have come to the show for a show of yours for the first time. What, what percentage would you say of those people come back? Or they said, this is just insanity. This, this is this, this type of show <laughs> either needs to be syndicated or should be illegal. It's probably illegal in some counties. You can't do this two nights in a row, but I wonder how many, how many converts you make um, in a new show. If you've ever even thought about it that way. Well, hopefully because I was, I went, I'd never seen a Steve Polt show and I am like one of your profits now. Well, hopefully most of them become, I, I can convert them. It's like, <laughs> it's a sales job. It's a, it's a total sales job. It's like, they're coming out there and I'm going to be me and it's going to be super fun. And hopefully I convert them and the conversion number is good. I'm sure every once in a while people are like, this person's insane. I don't ever take me to see him again. <laughs> and I'm fine with that. I'd rather have that any day than somebody say, meh. <laughs> One thing I guarantee you people aren't going to say is that word meh, M-E-H. Yeah. You know, they're not going to say that. They're going to either be like, I hate this person or I love this person. And I'm fine. Like, I don't care if they don't like it. They don't ever have to see it again. And I'm fine with that. I'd rather have a reaction. Um, and I mean, I want people to like me. Um, I think we all do, but they don't have to. I used I to need cool. people to like me. I needed it. And now I don't anymore. <laughs> I want them to. Don't get me wrong. I don't right. want to offend them. I don't want to get up and spew politics unless I'm just mocking myself. <laughs> People get enough politics on Facebook and CNN and everywhere. You know, you can't escape it. And I want to give people a respite from that. So if I am going to talk politics to the audience, I'm going to talk to it to them like I'm a political science professor that I had at university and tell a, a story about bringing home one, bringing home two teachers for Thanksgiving to my parents' house when they were all still alive. And one of them was a Nixon apologist who wrote books about Nixon, who loved Nixon. And the other one was a complete socialist who could knew everything about the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. And so one of them's talking about ping pong diplomacy with Nixon and the other's talking about Samosa, the Sandinistas and what was going on down there at the time, especially it was really a uh, cause celebre back in the eighties. You know, everything was about Nicaragua and the Sandinistas and were these 
really communist? Was it socialism? Was this a bad word? And so I love talking about high prop. Both the professors home, got them drunk. Both of them tried to pick up on my sister and they got in a huge screaming match with each other. And it was epic. But then we ended up, they were arm in arm crying with each other, loving each other. Because you weren't on Facebook yelling at each other. You were face to face. Yeah. If there was that sense. interaction. Totally. Yeah. Free programming is not cheap to produce. And if you'd like to support this type of independent podcast, you can make a donation at musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com and you will have my gratitude. Hey, we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff. We've talked about this great tour that you're embarking upon. You'll be leaving here and heading north up to the east and then back to Canada. And then got some great festivals on the horizon with um, Strawberry Festival as well as uh, Green River Fests a little bit later on in June. And then you've got on your tour schedule, I saw um, the Salmon River. What's that about? Oh, man. Okay. Not to be confused with the other Salmon Festival I'm playing, Salmon Fest in Alaska or Canmore Folk Fest in Alberta. No, this is going to be crazy. I've never been like Nature Guy Joe. You know how some <laughs> musicians are like yeah. hikers and, you know, like John Denver. I am the eagle. I live in high country. Like, that's never been me. I've always been a smartass. I have a song called Dick's Automotive where I have this line, nature's so bitchin'. But last summer, I went on a river trip, river rafting trip down the Rogue River with Sisters Folk Festival, put mm -hmm. it on. Mm -hmm. And I love Sisters Folk Festival. And so I was the entertainment. And the trip sold out really fast. You only get like 21 people. And I play every night and you camp every night outside. And I was freaked out, no cell service, nothing. And I, like I said, I'm not Mr. Outdoors, but when I came back, I was like Ewell Gibbons. I was like eating a tree, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you that are really young listening to this right now, he was a guy that used to, he was a great outdoorsman and he used to do commercials for grape nut cereal. And he'd say, right. ever eat a leaf? But by the time I came back, I was Ewell Gibbons on steroids. And so I said, I'm gonna do my own trip and this time I want to do it down the Salmon River, the main arm of the Salmon River. And so I use this company called Arta, A-R-T-A. And they're really cool because they give their money back to the environment. They're just great people. And so I go out on the road with 21 happy campers and I play shows each night and we float down the river and live in nature for like six days, five nights, six days. And every night I sing songs. And so the first trip sold out so fast and the second trip is halfway sold out. So if you're interested, go to my website because it will sell out in the next uh, couple of weeks and it's going to be just an amazing trip. Yeah, we did talk. We did not talk about your website simply called Pultz, P-O-L-T-Z.com. A wealth of information as one would expect. Um, I, I made a list of questions. I think we got to some of the topics and, and I don't want to <laughs> you know, monopolize your entire time, but there's a couple of stories I wonder... And I feel like I'm kind of ripping this off. I, I listened to the great podcast you did with Joe Pug, working American, uh, the working songwriter, which I thought was really a fantastic expose. And I thought, and and typically I don't. Typically I don't read other people's interviews or listen to other people's podcasts about somebody that, that I'm interested in interviewing because I'm afraid of ripping off some of their their questions or you know not not making it interesting. Like you already talked to Joe. Joe already asked you a really cool question. But two things that he talked about, which I thought were um, 
really fun. And, and if you've not heard this, these podcasts with, with Joe Pug, you, you really do yourself a favor. Um, it's called The Working Songwriter, and it's a very well done uh, series of songs with, with songwriters. And <clears throat> I think that part of the fascination for me is that I am not a musician by any stretch of the imagination. I can't sing. I can't, I can't dance. Um, I can't play an instrument. If I sing in the shower, Steve, the, the water goes cold in the complex for a week. So I don't sing in the shower. It's, it's not good. My neighbors will browbeat me because they know exactly <laughs> what happened. Yeah. The water ran cold and it's Bruce's fault. It's bad news. But, um, uh, there was two things that, that sort of came up with it that I thought was kind of funny, and I wonder if you chat a little bit about it. And one I think was good sound advice, and the other was just downright interesting. And and the one that I thought was sound advice is you said to somebody one time, find a place that nobody else is playing, and then own that gig, own it. You be the guy that comes every Thursday night, no matter what, no matter what happens, you're there every Thursday night, and you do the entertainment Wednesday, or Tuesday, whatever night it is. But you own that thing, and that becomes your thing. I thought that that was really magnificent advice to to a journeyman or up and coming uh, apprentice musician. But the story about meeting Elvis, I thought was was uh, the the most interesting. That and and if you could just sort of flesh that out a little bit, I, I don't want to rip off Joe's interview because he did the research. But I'm going to benefit it, and so is our listeners. Well, getting back to the first thing you alluded to, finding a place to play once a week. I gave that advice to Jewel and that was when jewel was just a barista at a coffee house and then she found we found this place and she ended up making it her own i believe energy attracts certain energy so if you make a scene you can make your own scene and it forces you to come up with new material but the elvis thing see we moved to palm springs and we i was born in canada in halifax nova scotia and when we moved to palm springs and we became u.s citizens we uh we lived across the street from the guy who managed the airport. So I got to meet Frank Sinatra when he came in. Um, the guy who played Uncle Charlie on My Three Sons. Yeah. I was I was uh, his caddy at the golf course <laughs> <laughs> for the Bob Hope Desert Classic. I got to meet Bob Hope. I was an altar boy. And Bob Hope came to communion, and I was the lead altar boy. And I got to be the altar boy that was there when – Bob Hope came up to communion in the Catholic Church and the priest goes the body of Christ. And then you're supposed to say amen. And back in those days, you held your tongue out and went like that, stuck your tongue out. And the priest would put the host and the host would represent Jesus's body. And the host wouldn't be Jesus's body until you rang the bells as a communion boy, as a as an altar boy. Mm -hmm. When the priest held up the host and blessed it and then you'd ring the bells because that meant a miracle took place and the host is now jesus and so as altar boys we were told never let that host hit the ground or jesus is dead and that's on you and Ooh. so bob opens up and he goes the priest goes body of christ and bob Hope goes amen father and <laughs> winks at me like wings and goes like that and it was so funny he had that nose and then the priest is so shaky nervous because it's bob hope's tongue and the host goes on sideways and rolls off his tongue in slow motion and i went no and i dove down and caught it so i saved jesus for all the listeners out there right now yeah this world would be a fiery inferno if it weren't for me saving jesus's body and the host and then getting bob hope to swallow it again people have no idea how I changed the course of history. Satan would be walking on the streets, but that's not what I'm here to talk to you about right now. I'm here to talk to you about Elvis Presley because he was the king. And I saw every one of his movies when I was a kid and I loved Elvis Presley and I wanted to be Elvis Presley. And 
he flew in to Palm Springs, California at 3 p.m. And the guy who lived across the street told me and my sister, Kathy, and she was a couple years older than me, that we could meet him. It was 1969. I was nine years old. It was comeback special, Elvis. He flies in on a plane. I could see the plane above us. He let us ride our bikes on the tarmac of the airport. We laid our bikes down and ran towards the plane. This is obviously pre-9-11. Right. <laughs> we were on the tarmac. The plane skidded down. You saw the steam leave as the tires skidded, the squeak of the tires. It skids to a halt. The steps come down and out walks Elvis Presley in full-on black leather with a pompadour, with the sideburns, the pork chop sideburns. And he waited for us to come to him. Rock star cool handbook rule number one. Wait for fans to come to you and act like it's business as usual he had it down pat and he smiled the most charismatic smile i had ever seen in my life it was a thousand watts and he just waited for us and we ran up to him and i've never forgot the tone of his voice when he said sounds like you kids been a running and i said you had to catch you elvis and he picked me up and put me on his shoulders and swung me around took my baseball hat off and tossed my hair around and then he hugged my sister for what seemed like a really long time. And I remember feeling weird and going, it's okay, Elvis, you could have her. <laughs> I said that. He said, your sister sure is pretty. But he was just joking around. He was just being funny. He was said, he a I'll big guy? Like, was, yeah. he, was he a tall man? Was, it, was, was he a lot of guy? Was t- I've never seen Elvis. Yeah, was, was he like was a, a big, big guy. Yeah. A man. And he hugged my sister and he was so funny. He goes, I'm going to take you on tour with me, pretty lady, something like that. And then he gave us his autograph. But the thing I remember most was he never stopped the conversation. He just kept talking to us, gave us his autograph. And then he was in no hurry. Like he really needed us to be there. And I've never forgotten that. Like he needed us as much as we needed him. And then finally, one of his assistants came up after what seemed like an eternity. I mean, what do you have to talk to Elvis about when you're nine years old? And, and then he goes, his boss, one of his people came up and goes, come on boss, we gotta go. And he got in the limousine and as the limousine pulled away, he leaned his head out and kept waving to us and his pompadour was blowing, getting all messed up. And he kept waving to us until finally it just disappeared like a mirage and he was gone. And we rode our bikes home high on the trail of success. And that was when I learned how to play. I can't help falling in love with you and blue suede shoes. It was amazing. It changed my life. I was going to say the story is perfect. It's perfect. <laughs> it's just such uh, because for me, rock stars are rock stars. They're they're just a different. They're just a different group of people. And when you can be near them, that makes you almost a rock star. It, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, they're, they're people too. They put their trousers on the same way as you and me, same kind of trousers. They probably, there's probably cost a little bit more than mine do, but nonetheless, it's the, it's the same, it's the same art of putting your, your trousers on, but there's still something magic. There's something magic yes. about these, about some of these people and they know it and you know it and you feel it. And it's not, it's not a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but it's not a big deal. It's not, it was all natural. I mean, the guy picks you up and puts you on his shoulders. Like, like, like it was nothing. Like, like you were his nephew, like, or his kid or something. It's just, yeah, let's go kid. And that, you know, and I think that that is like so cool. You know, when, when you, um, I, I interviewed an artist one time and legendary singer songwriter, I 
called her at her house because that's what, how the interview was going to go. We're going to do it on the telephone. And she picks up the phone and the water is running. And I said, hello, this is, I told her who it was. And she said, oh, just a moment. And she was washing her dishes. And I thought, wow, like, <laughs> like you got dishes that are dirty and you wash them. How cool is that? Uh, like, That's that makes me great. almost like you, but no, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I got dirty dishes. I wash them, you know, because um, that's what needs to be done. But no, I, it's I think that there are certain aspects of of celebrities and people that are important to you in your life that you realize that they are people, too. And I think that that is pretty magic. I think you're right. Yeah. And it's it's, um, you know, you, you, you dig it. I could talk with you for another two, three, four hours. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation and I Me encourage too. folks to come out and see Steve Poltz tonight at the Great Eagle. If there's any tickets left, you should be owning one. You should be sitting in it in that seat. And that's that's just I know we're not supposed to get behind stuff and calls to action, all that kind of stuff, but do it. Just do it. Steve, thank you. All right. Well, it was great talking to you. This was the seventh episode of the podcast series, Conversations at Music My Mother Would Not Like. You can get more information about the weekly radio shows and the weekly stream series at the website musicmymotherwouldnotlike.com. If you ever get a chance to see Steve Poltz perform live, take it. Buy a ticket, go to the show, fasten your seatbelts, and you are in for the ride of your life. My big thanks to our sponsors, hereitthere.com and undiscoveredmusic.net. And finally, thank you for helping to spread the word about the podcast and telling your friends. I surely do appreciate it. So until next time, don't take any wooden nickels, and so long for now.